Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton City Council will be considering options for the Aberdeen Avenue area, including converting it from four lanes down to two. City Council is going to be uh, looking into the incidents at the Hamilton Pride events from a week or so ago as the mayor issues a statement on those things. And Robert Mueller has agreed to testify in public in front of the House Committee on July 17th. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The traffic issue, which are always important issues because it's neighborhoods and it's about transportation, it's about getting from A to B, and it's about public safety. You throw all those into the hat and what you get is, well, the concern we have, for instance, on Aberdeen, as we told you about. Uh, the Ward Council, Maureen Wilson, would like to see some traffic calming there. In other words, reduce the uh, the number of actual lanes of traffic by allowing parking on either side of the road, so there will be only one lane each way, and uh, also slowing down the speed limit. Now, not everybody on city council thinks that's such a good idea, and uh, it did pass, actually, uh, the traffic calming idea did pass at the Public Works Committee meeting a couple of days ago, but now it's going to go to the whole council, and that's going to happen today. So we talked to Councilor Whitehead, Terry Whitehead, who's obviously pushing for this to not happen for a variety of reasons that he articulated to us, uh, in just a, a couple of days ago. But uh, with the whole council dealing with this now, it's going to be interesting to see just how this debate's going to turn. Joining us to talk about this is John Paul Danko, who's the city councilor for Ward 8 on the uh, West Mountain. Uh, uh, John Paul, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on. It's a bright, sunny summer day. It's a lovely day, and uh, it could be well into the early hours of evening before you guys finish this. It sounds like it's going to be a pretty contentious item. Uh, now, Give us your thoughts on on where you are on this, because we've heard we've heard Councillor Ferguson on, Councillor Whitehead on. Uh, they're saying, "Look, at leave it alone. Uh, we we need this this arterial road," is how they described it. Uh, there are others, of course, including Councillor Wilson, who have said, "No, look at this is all about public safety, not from getting to point A to point B." Where are you on this? Well, I think uh, as the Ward A Councillor, um, we have to have a duty to consider all the aspects of our transportation network. So that's the the role and the purpose of the transportation network, and it's also the public safety aspect. Um, on the transportation side, I think it's very important to realize that um, Garth and the Queen Street Hill in Aberdeen are absolutely critical um, transportation corridor for the residents in my area in Ward 8. Um, and along with that, also the businesses in the community, we have Mohawk College, which is right at the corner of Fennel and Garth, along with uh, St. Joe's West 5th Campus, Hillfield Strathallen. So that corridor is, in particular is of, of you know, huge importance to our residents. Um, at the same time, recently, back in February, we as a council unanimously approved a Vision Zero action plan. And the one simple goal of that is to... Um, reduce fatalities or serious injuries on our roadways to zero. So it puts me as, as the ward councillor in a bit of a ethical and a practical dilemma between trying to balance the needs of the transportation network and our residents and with the public safety aspect. So and I, we've heard many of those arguments in the past, and, and I'll just run a couple of these past you, and you can give me your views on these. And uh, in, in no particular order. Uh, one of them that Councillor Ferguson talked about uh, is the fact that that is actually a designated emergency route. In other words, if there's a problem on the highway, uh, the traffic is all supposed to be uh, shunted off onto Aberdeen, uh, depending on where the accident is, of course. But it has happened in the past. 
uh, and he's suggesting that look at one lane of traffic each way means it's going to be gridlocked all the way through the east or the west part of the city if you do that. So he says that's got to be re- remained exactly the way it is right now. Is is that an argument that holds water as far as you're concerned? Well, my understanding is that Aberdeen Avenue uh, is not part of the official EDR route, the emergency detour route. Um, we just got confirmation from staff yesterday on that. But that doesn't alleviate the concern that if there is a problem on the 403, um, that traffic does absolutely come up through Aberdeen. And I think that the problems with that speaks to just the growing and changing nature of our city and traffic in general. Um, our city is scheduled to or anticipated to grow by about a third within the next 10 years. That's an extra 250,000 people. So our traffic patterns and what we as um, native Hamiltonians might be used to, those are changing over time. And it's difficult for me where I've lived here my whole life and I have a set, you know, kind of idea in my head of how long it takes to get places and where, what routes to take it's really difficult for me to adjust. So, for example, when I go to McMaster, Queen Street and, uh, and the hill there, that's my preferred route because that's the way I always go. But recently I'm starting to realize, you know, maybe I need to check my phone in the morning to see is that really the fastest route. So I, I think that concern about what happens on the 403, what happens with any of our transportation corridors, um, it, it, it's evolving over time, and, that, and that's a citywide challenge. The other element, too, that uh, that I received a lot of emails on after I had, I had these counselors on about this, John Paul, uh, was the imminent construction of the LRT, which is going to mess up traffic all over the city for quite a long time. Uh, and their suggestion is, look, you can't start to do road diets on roads like this because there's going to be overflow traffic that's going to go there that ordinarily may have gone on to where the construction is going to be happening. Well, LRTs. The construction, anyway, is a temporary condition. So I think those those are conflating two separate issues. We're not going to be building the entire LRT corridor from end to end for five years straight. It's going to be built in stages, um, and as it progresses through, certainly there are going to be aspects that do directly impact um, the traffic on Garth to Queen Street Hill down to uh, Aberdeen. But I think that those, when that is construction that's in that specific area, um, we have an opportunity to address that at that time. And, and of course, if LRT construction in that area is going to shuffle more cars onto Aberdeen Avenue, then we would have an opportunity as part of the construction um, traffic planning to take away parking or do what we need to do to make sure that those cars are accommodated. But I, I think that those are two very separate issues because if there's construction in the LRT um, in the east end, that doesn't really impact Aberdeen or Queen Street Hill or Garth at all. No, it shouldn't. Uh, what about that idea? Because I know that during the committee meeting uh, earlier, uh, there was a, a compromise uh, put out, I think it was by Councillor Ferguson, if I recall, uh, that said, look, at, uh, how about parking? Okay, we'll do that. But uh, as we do on other major arterial roads during rush hour, no parking on that road. Now, that was defeated. That seems to me, and I'm just throwing this out here, is it might be a, a compromised position that a lot of councillors might be able to, to gravitate toward. Well, we already have that. There's already off-peak parking on Aberdeen Avenue um, for different parts of the day. So really what he was proposing was a continuation of the status quo. Um, so the Public Works Committee voted that down, recognizing that if we are actually committed to our Vision Zero protocol, then this is part of that action. 
But uh, then why have the parking there all the time then? The the idea from my understanding from staff is that they've identified that particular corridor in Aberdeen as a um, uh, as a collision hotspot. And it's we're not just talking about pedestrians or cyclists. We're talking about all road users. So this is people that are driving in their cars as well are in danger on that stretch of road just because of the traffic volumes, the configurations, and uh, the, the traffic patterns in the area. So the the idea from staff and the proposal, and it, I mean, let's be honest, this is a relatively small change. It's a pretty modest proposal. We're not changing the actual configuration of the road at all. We're just proposing to add um, parking along both sides. And what that does is it provides a buffer between the sidewalks and the pedestrian areas and the the traveled lanes of the road and it also because you end up visually when you're when you're in a car it makes the road feel a little bit more constrained so it tends to slow drivers down and it it makes them more attentive and more careful in their driving patterns but the the staff information i I found was somewhat contradictory uh and upon questioning and at the committee meeting this is of course uh i guess your staff actually indicated that no speed is not a really a problem on that road because of the volume of traffic and the fact that there are now eight different traffic lights on aberdeen between longwood and queen street uh, that's only a 1.6 kilometer stretch of road uh more than ample periods and, and and situations for people to be able to cross uh it sounds to me like we've got a driver problem here not a speeding problem well, I think we again we have a driver problem citywide, and, and maybe maybe society wide. That just seems to be a, you know, driver behavior is is one of those issues that um, just n- never seems to go away. But in Aberdeen, in particular, um, the the speeding is, is yes. So staff said during peak times, speeding is not as much of a concern on Aberdeen Avenue, um, but it certainly is off peak and. Again, the, the the cars parked along the sides. The idea is that it it changes the visual perception of the road when you're a driver. So it makes you more careful. It makes you more in tune to your your surroundings. And there are engineering studies that back this up. You know, like staff is not just coming out with these proposals out of the blue. Um, there is evidence for this. Now, I'll, I'll be the first to admit it's not the ideal situation. Um, I mean, if you're going to do this from scratch, you would probably redesign that whole road entirely differently because as part of our Vision Zero goals, a big part of that is changing the engineering design and the physical layout of our transportation routes. So in this case, we're taking a relatively minor opportunity to do that by reconfiguring some of the parking. All right, uh, final question for you, and and maybe what I want to do here, John Paul, is put this into a historical perspective, if I could, because I haven't heard too many other people bring this argument for. Uh, Is this much ado about nothing? I mean, when when push comes to shove here, because we had the same argument, matter of fact, probably from the same councillors, uh, when the, the conversions were done on Charlton and Herkimer Street a couple of years ago to allow for bike traffic uh, and put parking on the street. And, uh, I mean, we were told that that was Armageddon, uh, the traffic movement as we know it is going to end in this city. Uh, I get the sense now, I'm not sure, I'm not saying everybody's happy with it, but everybody's used to it now and accommodating themselves and doing what they need to do, and we've moved on. Is the same thing going to happen with this issue? Well, I think we need 
we do need to take special consideration with our mountain accesses. I mean, the escarpment is like a river, and each mountain access is a bridge across the river. And those are absolutely critical transportation corridors. So we do need to be very careful with um, the traffic patterns for those. But if you do look at Kenilworth Avenue, for, for an example, um, where Councillor Marula instituted a whole bunch of traffic safety, traffic calming measures um, down the hill, it was the exact same consider- concerns um, from the mountain councillors that this is going to change traffic patterns. Like you said, it's going to be Armageddon, you know. Um, and then lo and behold, after it's instituted, um, not a lot changed. And part of the Public Works Committee, I, I made an amendment to the initial motion that staff report back to Public Works within a year um, with an analysis of how the traffic calming measures have performed and if there's any changes that need to be made that they report back with um, with updates. So it's not like this is, is set in stone forever once we uh, you know put up some parking signs. There are opportunities to tweak this and make sure that the traffic flow is gets that people get where they need to go. But on that point, uh, one of the key areas of what uh, Council Marula did on Kenilworth Avenue was speed reduction down to 40 kilometers an hour as maximum speed. Uh, and I'm hearing from more and more people that that may actually should be maybe now the new standard on on even on arterial roads right now that we slow it down. What, 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 are you okay with that? We are instituting uh, 40 kilometer hour speed limits within neighborhoods, yeah. um, down down to 30 kilometer hours in school zones. Uh, so we have a mandate now from the province to do that. We're slowly rolling that out. In terms of our arterial roads, again, I think we, we need to be a little bit more careful to make sure that we balance the needs of our residents to get where they go need to go within a timely manner but they're not immune from the traffic safety aspect vision zero applies to every road in our city and council unanimously supported vision zero there has and, and probably will be a motion put forward here tonight also to just table this and hold off until uh, the Queen Street conversion is done. There's, uh, the indication there, I guess, the insinuation is that that's going to have some sort of an impact on what's going to happen on Aberdeen, too. Uh, is that going to fly? I'm not sure. I, I think that's a reasonable request. I mean, changing Queen Street to two-way inevitably will change, fundamentally change, some of the traffic patterns coming down uh, Beckett Drive, down the Queen Street Hill, because you'll have an opportunity to go straight. So as of this year, uh, we'll be two-way to Main Street, and as of next year, continuing that down to King Street. But I'm not sure that that is, again, it's a separate issue. The the traffic safety problems on Aberdeen don't go away, depending on what we do on Queen Street. It will, in my opinion anyway, alleviate some of the traffic concerns, but the safety issues don't, just disappear. Well, it's going to be an interesting discussion today because we've talked to both sides on this and and they seem pretty entrenched in their positions right now, but both seem pretty confident that they're going to carry the day. Uh, So, uh, well, we'll see just how long this takes. John Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. John Paul Danko, the uh, City Councilor for Ward 8. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, One of the other contentious items, and uh, there are more than a couple uh, that Council is going to be dealing with later on today, uh, is addressing the issue of the Pride uh, incident that happened at Gage Park, of course, uh, during the Pride celebrations, the hate incidents, uh, the rallies in front of City Hall. It's all kind of been pushed into one big bucket right now, and uh, they're going to try to come up with some sort of a solution toward that. 
uh, to deal with, uh, well, frank, frankly, some of the, the animosity that seems to have developed over the last little while. It seems rather toxic, and uh, it's it's alive and well on social media, or maybe not well, but people are very, very uh, upset about this and venting their anger and their frustration on both sides. How did we get to this, and, and how are we going to get out of this? John Best has been watching this whole thing. John, of course, is publisher of the Bay Observer, and uh, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. John, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again today. My pleasure, Bill. Listen, as, you, as you've seen what's happened here, and we can talk specifically about the incidents, but I'm talking about the repercussions of this. Uh, it, it seems as if what happened at Gage Park a week or so ago uh, has just acted as a powder keg to, to blow up what has been, I think, a very strong undercurrent of, of, of concern uh, from the LGBTQ community, from police, from, uh, from city councilors. It just seems as if all of a sudden now it's just all spewed out there, and I don't know if anybody knows how to handle this. Well, it's interesting. Um, I I've just uh, today sat down and watched uh, roughly an hour, maybe an hour and 20 minutes of, of film uh, from the event uh, coming from all different sources. And, you know, when, when I look at what happened there, and it's only, I'm only going by the, uh, by the video, and certainly anybody that was there can contradict me, it, it appeared to me that you had multiple groups here. It wasn't simply the Hamilton uh, LBGQ community and the religious protesters. Um, you had other groups. You had that the, the self-styled anti-fa group were there. Uh, you had something, uh, somebody wearing uh, T-shirts. You had a number of people wearing T-shirts. Canadian Nationalist Party, and I almost felt like the uh, that the you know the event was was to some degree hijacked by extremists on on both sides of the spectrum that's certainly what it looked like how did it happen and i would by the way i i would urge any of any counselors before they you know their meetings at 5 uh, they they should go on youtube and uh, and google uh, gauge park gay parade and and look at an hour of this visual uh, because it it really leaves you with the feeling that almost the the you know the the picnic or the the event at Gage Park was almost a backdrop uh, for these extremist uh, groups acting out. With that in mind, and since you've just recently viewed this stuff, John, uh, give me your sense as as to exactly how this happened. It, it was was it planned? Was this orchestrated? I mean. Uh, uh, or, or, you know, because obviously for everybody to come to the same place at the same time, I, I can't believe that was happenstance. No, it, it, it looks to me, and again, uh, I wasn't there, uh, I wasn't an organizer, but what, what, first of all, there's no question that the, that the religious right group invaded the party. Uh, so you see footage of them walk up until, up until that point, what you're looking at largely is... Uh, a gay pride event. You're seeing people dancing, people on the bandstand. Uh, looks, you know, good time. People wearing wearing costumes, but not masks, uh, just costumes. And it looks, you know, pretty much like a fun event. There's kids. Then you see the um, the religious uh, right wingers marching in. And uh, just speaking to this, there's been a lot of criticism of the police. As you see them marching in, you see two bicycle police officers confront them. Not confront them, but, but stop them. 
and and you can even hear some of the dialogue and clearly what the what the police officers are doing is is kind of trying to lay down some ground rules because they see that there's you know these people are carrying anti-gay banners and uh one guy has a, a megaphone and a with a microphone and he's got the megaphone all wrapped up in a plastic bag because he's probably anticipating somebody's going to try to you know throw water on it or something but right from the get-go, uh, clearly, the, the, you know, had those uh, right-wing religious groups not walked into the park, there probably wouldn't have been violence. Having said that, uh, there, there, appeared, uh, there, there were a bunch of people with pink masks on um, who were pushing a uh, sort of a plastic and, and wooden barricade that um, clearly they were anticipating something. Uh, that you know that didn't pop up spontaneously. So mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is there were there were there were groups at the party um, wearing pink costumes, whether they were actually part of the gay community or whether they were disguising themselves. I can't tell, but they were clearly there anticipating violence. So there you there you have it. That's what I saw, and and I would certainly urge anybody uh, that cares to to go on YouTube. There's well over an hour of material there. Some of it is provided by people on different sides of the issue, so you have to be careful. And, and sadly, there's no time code on the video, so you can't really get a sequence of events uh, other than uh, you know, what you can surmise. But uh, certainly uh, the, the picture of the uh, right-wing religious groups marching into the parade, that's clearly towards the beginning and before the violence began. And, uh, you know, as I say, there, there was a police presence there. The, the, the pink-clad people, I, 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 I'm, I'm a little concerned about, and I, I can't really get a read on what's going on here. Because uh, as we found out later on, when we talked on this show here, but with people who were there that day, uh, they're the ones that put this curtain or barrier, or whatever, I guess, to try to separate the, uh, the right-wingers from, from the, the festivities itself. Uh, so obviously that was pre-planned. I mean, somebody had to construct that thing. Uh, but I've not heard I've not heard anything from anybody yet that said, yeah, we uh, we had somebody looking out for us on this situation. Uh, when I talked to the organizers of, of the parade, Cameron Crush has been on the show a couple of times now talking about this. Uh, he says he talked directly to police. He didn't tell me he talked to anybody else. I don't think he did uh, with anybody else. So who are these people and why were they there that day? I don't know, and and you know that that sort of jives with what you what you infer when you look at the video is that they were actually a separate group. Uh, they put on these pink hoods uh, clearly to identify with the uh, with the uh, the gay pride group, but uh, they weren't simply putting the barricade uh, up to uh, keep peace, if you will. It looked like they were actually sort of marching with the barricade to try to push back. Uh, these uh, religious uh, right-wing people, um, you know, it wasn't simply, a, you know, a sort of uh, uh, intervention to, to keep peace. It was, it was a more aggressive thing than that, Bill. And, uh, you know, and, and who knows who threw the first punch. What I can tell you is uh, that there was a lot of punches thrown, and some people with pink hoods were getting in some pretty good licks. So, and again, you, know, you have to ask you why were they there? Were they asked to be there? Is this a separate group altogether? Uh, and why the masks? I mean, which is another question. This harkens back to the, you know the vandalism on Lock Street. You always have to worry about things like this. But it sounds as if uh, they were anticipating a confrontation. There's, I, I think you can come to no other conclusion, Bill, than than that they were there 
anticipating and perhaps uh, expecting um, uh, some kind of violence. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go way off from trying to say who initiated the violence. I mean, there's no question uh, the, the religious group was, was very, very provocative. Um, they were. They had a megaphone. They had signs. Uh, you know, and and they were. Uh, there's no question that it, you know that they were being verbally provocative. Um, I don't know who actually started the pushing and shoving. And and you know, and I, I think the police have taken a really bad rap here because they were they were told that if they set up a, a recruitment booth, uh, that that would make people uncomfortable. And yet now it appears they're being criticized for not getting there quickly enough, uh, which would sort of lead you to the conclusion is, is what was being suggested that, that maybe they have a, a significant presence in the perimeter of the event, because uh, how can they get there quickly unless they're more or less there already, and yet they're not welcome in the park. So are they supposed to surround the park with, uh, you know, 20 or 30 officers? And what kind of, an, you know, if you're uncomfortable with seeing them in a booth, uh, how would you feel about seeing the place surrounded with police? So, you know, it seems to me it's a bit of a no-win situation for the police. Certainly what I did see was once the police arrived, um, they behaved, uh, it looked to me like in a very, very uh, temperate way. Um, the only person I saw getting led away was a member of the Canadian Nationalist Party uh, in handcuffs. Uh, the, the other arrests appeared to have perhaps taken place after the fact. Uh, but certainly the, the, what you do see of the police is that they were behaving in a very restrained manner, uh, and they were certainly getting between the two groups. It, at that point, I when... Think the when violence had, but in fairness, I think the violence had already occurred, and, and I think really what happened was when the police got there, everybody stopped, you know, uh, which would make sense. Part of this whole picture, of course, is what's going on in the other end of town at City Hall, in the in the... In the the square in front of City Hall, and has been happening for the last uh, number of weekends right now. And those are these rallies with uh, the yellow vesters, as, as they've become known, uh, which they say right. is, is, is and in, uh, the, while the, the critics of it would say this is very incendiary, uh, the city shouldn't allow that. I know they're going to try to craft some sort of legislation, I guess, today at City Hall about this. But boy, I, and I understand that. Look, at I, I find the message that these people are putting there revolting as much as anybody else does. But you're, you're walking down that road about free speech versus hate speech, and uh, I'm not sure. But any given day, whoever you talk to, uh, they're putting that line between those two things in different spots sometimes. Yeah, it's a it's a moving line, and it's interesting because the the audio on some of the tape, you could hear the bicycle, the two bicycle police officers talking to these religious protesters as they were marching into the park and and it was a very reasonable conversation that appeared to be going on on both sides um, and but the police were making it clear uh, you could overhear the conversation they were saying you know you can you can express your views but you know there we we don't want to see any violence and and at that point it looked like a, a fairly calm uh, exchange of views uh, but, you know, the, the other sad thing about this, Bill, for anybody that's looking at these videos, and, and I really think if council's going to vote on this, they need to satisfy themselves what, what is available, is the youth of these, uh, of these protesters. Um, uh, it's, you know, really sad to see such young people uh, holding these really, really extreme views. 
um, you know, it makes you wonder, you, you know, you, you see obviously what's going on south of the border, but the idea that you've got, you know, when you think of young people, you think of you tolerant, anything goes, happy-go-lucky kind of thing, and, and you see these really severe views being expressed by people that look like they're in their 20s. It's, it's really quite disturbing to see. There were no old people in the group at all. Some of the gay pride uh, participants were, uh, were um, uh, you know, older, but the, the vast majority of the people, especially the violent in the violent groups were all young, and it was really quite sad to see. Well, that's, uh, we're getting into the realm of indoctrination, I guess, uh, which is uh, pretty easy to do on social media, I suppose, these days. Uh, you know, you can find websites to substantiate just about any kind of mindset that you want, obviously, and that's that's part of the concern, too. Uh, John, we got a few yeah. minutes left here. This is right now on the lap of city council, and, uh, and of course, by extension, I guess, police service and the police services board. Uh, I know the mayor's issued another statement to say he wants to try to get everybody together at the table. Uh, how do you how do you bridge what seems to be a pretty big gap right now between the city and and these groups, especially the LGBTQ community, who feels right now as if uh, nobody's got their back? Well, I, I I don't know if you can bridge the gap because, quite frankly, uh, I I saw. Um, I I think it'd be very difficult to to criticize the police for. Uh, their behavior at this event. They were told to stay away. Nonetheless, they sent plainclothes officers to the event. And in addition, uh, at the very beginning or near the beginning, uh, near the beginning of the disturbance at least, they had they had bicycle police officers there. Uh, I don't know how long it took to get the larger group of, of officers there, but I, I see it as a no-win situation, frankly, because Again, if there had been an extensive police presence surrounding the park in in order to be able to get there really fast, uh, somebody would have complained that that was intimidating. So, uh, you know, I I think there's a lot of extreme views going on here, and, uh, you know, we've got the perpetual victimhood thing going on. Um, I think most people in our community are tolerant, but, um, you know, this, this thing has become a bit of a, a backdrop for extremist groups uh, uh, acting out, and uh, it, it's a pretty tough climate. I, I don't think you can at this point sit down. and re- I mean, you can sit down with reasonable people and resolve things, but the problem is there weren't all reasonable people at the event. And again, going back to the video, you see all kinds of people uh, trying to get in between uh, the two groups. Uh, you know, typically they're older people. There was a guy with a beard and you know what you'd typically expect in a in a liberalized society like we have, um, but unfortunately, if there's extremist hijacking events, uh, I you know you're sitting down and negotiating with the wrong people because the anarchist groups uh, clearly they they don't want to they don't want to resolve issues they they want to exploit issues. Well, and therein lies the problem, and I guess one of the other concerns here, and, and I don't know if council's going to deal with this or even how they could deal with this today, is, is the acrimonious relationship right now between the LGBTQ community and police services. And that's not just a Hamilton issue. That's going on in major centers right across North America. Yeah, I, well, uh, I, I don't know the answer. Uh, it's uh, good luck uh, to council uh, trying to sort that one out because, uh, I, I, you know, there's... I'm sure there's. Uh, we can point to all kinds of instances uh, where 
where police have, have shown prejudice against uh, the LBGQ community. But um, if we try to look at the event last weekend, uh, it looked to me like our police were well-trained, well-disciplined, maybe a little late to the plate, but whose fault was that? Well, the only concern I had with the, I had the chief on the show last week, of course, as you know, and, and I, I asked him if you knew or anticipated that there might have been conflict and trouble, perhaps a, a higher complement of officers in the park might have been called for at this stage. But I, I don't know that they had any advanced knowledge of that. I mean, I don't know where these people came from, whether they took the bus from City Hall or whether they organized a Gage Park. They just appeared. Uh, and then, of course, the the other group you talked about, they just appeared. So uh, somebody was planning something, and, and I guess I would have to assume at this stage that nobody else knew about it. Yeah, when certainly when you saw the, uh, the Christian group, uh, Christian with air quotes group uh, walking in, I mean, they already had... They they clearly were ready. They clearly had organized somewhere. They had they had you know they gone to a staging area to get ready because uh, they had all their signs. They had their um, you know many of them had cameras, and uh, of course they had this uh, this huge megaphone. And and the irony is that the, while you're watching the melee going on, it's the it's the right wing Christian guy with the megaphone that's yelling, please stop the violence, stop the violence. And it, 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 there's kind of a uh, Kafka-esque uh, reality uh, to all this thing going on. It's, uh, it's quite amazing. Uh, it looked to me like there were, there were at least two groups that were ready for bear uh, that had gone there. Um, I, I really wonder who these uh, hooded uh, people in pink were, whether they were really members of the LGBTQ community or whether they were somebody trying to exploit the situation. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, this is not an easy thing to sort out, I don't think. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that council uh, meeting tonight, three days after the event, four days after the event, whether they really have the information that they need uh, to make an intelligent decision. Well, to your point, I know we're just about out of time. I, I would venture a guess that most of them have not seen uh, the video footage that you've just referred to here. Uh, you know, I don't know what their information source has been at this stage. Uh, I can tell you this: it's a pretty safe bet that the uh, the, the galleries are going to be pretty full at the city hall meeting today. Uh, from uh, people that are very concerned about how this is going to turn out, it's uh, it's going to be a rather raucous afternoon and a raucous meeting, I would think. Uh, John, thanks as always for giving us some perspective and some extra information about this. Uh, we'll, I'd, I'd like to think that they're going to resolve this thing tonight, but I think obviously we have to be pragmatic about this. And uh, the first step here, there has to be some communication between these sides and, 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 and an airing out, I think, of the concerns before we can actually start to find some solutions. Yeah, and I would just say to counselors, uh, take an hour, watch some video before you go in there and start expressing too much in the way of definite opinions. John, thanks as always. Good talking with you again today. You're welcome, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, another revelation yesterday that uh, obviously raised some eyebrows. Uh, it was uh, announced yesterday in Washington that Robert Mueller, he, of course, of the Mueller report, uh, has agreed to testify in the public, uh, actually before the Senate and the Congressional Committee. Uh, he's going to do a two for uh, two for one day, a double header, as it were, 
on July the 17th. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor in Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Elliot, good to have you on again. Thanks for the time today. Good morning, Bill. I guess first lesson here we should learn from what we've gone through so far, uh, we should manage our expectations about this announcement. Indeed. I, I think that's a great opener, a great way to start. There was far too much... Um, Let's defer everything until we hear from Mueller. Mueller's going to be the silver bullet. Mueller, the, and it was uh, managed in a certain way that it did not lead to the kind of dramatic change in the trajectory of American politics that a lot of people thought it might. And he has made it clear that he didn't want to go anything beyond what he'd already said publicly. Basically, he said, don't bother bringing me before Congress because I won't go beyond what I've already said. My report is my testimony. Uh, and he reiterated that, of course, uh, as you remember, just a couple of weeks ago, and he did, he did make that public statement. That, uh, uh, But it was interesting because he did make a couple of revelations that I think caught a couple of people off guard, said it was never his intention that there was ever going to be any charges or recommendation of charges. That's He said that's the Congress job, not ours, uh, notwithstanding the fact that his boss, uh, William Barr, kind of jumped in there and did that for them. You're right. Well, there's a whole bunch of issues here. One is that um, he was upset, apparently, we know, because he sent a couple letters, which became public, to Barr, saying, you have uh, misrepresented the, the substance and tone of my report, of the report. So, but uh, he let it go. I suspect, you know, he didn't come back publicly and say anything after that during his one brief public statement. That may well be the subject of a lot of the inquiry. Uh, Barr really had spun the report before its release to say no, no conspiracy, no collusion. And uh, Mueller is a reluctant witness. He does not wish to do this. So we'll have to see, and I've got some thoughts on it, just what might come out of this. Yeah, we should. I should mention that right off the top. He was subpoenaed by, by both committees. Indeed. And, and he says he will honor the subpoenas. He did not volunteer his time to come and go and do this. No, not at all. And he's, as I said, in his public statement, uh, his short public statement after the report came out, he said basically he opened with, uh, this is really all about the Russians. We ought to pay attention to it. Then he went through the two volumes that he had there, the first volume saying we could not, and you and I have talked about this over the long period of time, we couldn't uh, find evidence that would rise to the level of uh, collusion, even though he had a number of uh, instances. Book two was, well, what, that there, what about obstruction of justice? And he said, in a famous phrase, if we could have cleared him, we would have, but we didn't. And now, but but I'm forbidden from my mandate from doing anything about it. That's for others, other recourse, which means, as you've said, that's Congress. Well, that was the inference, except that, as you say, Barr seemed to think it was him, or or did he just do right. an end run around that? Well, Barr clearly has uh, presented himself in a way that surprised a lot of people. He's essentially. Uh, uh, an advocate for the view of the president, and he will carry that through going forward, which has implications for some of the ongoing cases, which we can talk about. But, you know, the very first question that I had, and I suspect it's the first question, uh, and this is, this is why these hearings potentially are important, the first question is going to be, you know, you said you couldn't uh, prosecute the president because there's a memo, uh, a longstanding memo, inside the Department of Justice, if that memo didn't exist, or if this person 
was not the president, would you prosecute based on the evidence? And it'll be interesting to see how Mueller can dodge answering that, other than by repeating, I was bound by that memo and stopping. But that would be, I think, uh, potentially a, a hard place for him to wiggle out of. It'll be interesting to see how he does it. It's it's obviously one of the first questions that are going to yeah. be asked. But listen, before we get into what may happen here, Elliot, maybe there's a question that supersedes all of these right now. Is he going to be allowed to, to testify? I mean, or is, yeah. is, is, is Barr going to step in? That's his boss. Or, or, you know, there's some concern that, that Trump may have some say in this. I don't think he does, but that doesn't mean he wouldn't try. Well, there's two things here. Well, three things. First of all, I think that's being explored, and I don't have the answer to it. Uh, but uh, second of all, Barr has said, I have no problems. If Mueller wants to testify, let him. He said that publicly more than once. Of course, he can go back on it. Um, but then there's the factual case. This is now a private citizen. Is there any executive privilege involved here? Is there any way he can be prevented, told, forbidden to to uh, testify? And at the minute, as I say, we don't know that. Because that hasn't been tested yet, has it? I, I, it's just now coming into focus. I mean, because I know they're always saying, well, look, it's, you know, executive privilege, et cetera. But the, uh, the counter-argument to that that has been presented has always been, but you already testified to the Mueller Commission. Yes. So, uh, so you know, you've already done that. So we're just asking you to repeat it in public session. That's all. Now, but nobody's ever tested that. It may actually come to play here. We'll see. Uh, there's always the possibility that since, as you opened up with, don't have high expectations, it could possibly be one, and this is being speculated upon, that Trump doesn't mind having Mueller sop up all of the attention in the middle of July to uh, a, a basically another one of his Trumpian diversions. If you're talking about Mueller, you're not talking about other things, and nothing came out of the Mueller report that he can't handle. But then you're not talking about, oh, women or Iran or whatever else comes to the attention. You know, the, what about immigration and the separating of babies and their parents. And there's a lot of other issues that could be damaging potentially more than the Mueller report. So does Trump even want to prevent this from happening? How far down are they going to drill when, when they start questioning? I mean, well, I'll give you an example, I guess. Uh, the report says that, okay, this meeting took place in Trump Tower. Uh, and, and a lot of people were saying, well, then how come Don Jr. didn't get called to testify? I mean, you know, why, why did they not seem to explore that? And, you know, with, and the speculation was, well, they could be the focus of part of the investigation. Well, apparently they weren't. Well, also, why wasn't the president called? Yeah. That's going to, you know, he submitted written answers to written questions, and most of them wanted, I'm not going to answer that, or I don't remember, or I can't recall. So uh, there will be a lot of attention focused on, the family. Why didn't the president himself get called? And the answer in the Mueller report in some footnote was, well, that would take so much time to litigate that that, it would out, that my mandate would uh, run on too long. I wanted to get the report out. And it I didn't, didn't, it didn't bother Ken Starr when he had to get Bill Clinton no, in front of the camera. No, he went on and on and then released all these yeah. salacious details. And remember, a lot of this report is still redacted. We should also point out that there's two parts to this testimony. There's the public and that's going to be quite something because, uh, I'm sorry for Mueller, he's going to be testifying before two committees on the same day, the Intelligence Committee and the Judicial Committee of the House, and Judiciary Committee of the House, and uh, his staff, and this hasn't been picked up sufficiently, is going to be grilled behind closed doors where some of the questions you're now raising and others are raising uh, might be answered out of sight of the public. How long they would stay 
private in that town is another issue. But the staff that did a lot of the actual digging is going to be interviewed in depth by the same two committees. And, and again, it's it's going to be interesting to see just what the line of questioning is. I mean, we already know what what we're going to see. Uh, Democrats obviously are going to be questioning. Republicans are going to be saying this is a waste of time, and, and you know, there's nothing well, here, etc. I mean, they've already got their talking points. Well, there's there's something to keep an eye on here. Uh, the Republicans might be falling into some kind of a uh, uh, an origins trap. That is, the Republican line has been, we don't want to talk about what's ever in the Mueller report. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the origins. How was this set up? Why was this set up? This was a partisan witch hunt from the beginning. It was illegitimate from the beginning. You know, this, is, this was eight angry Democrats, and they had it in for that's a line of attack you can make publicly. But if you take on Mueller personally along those lines, he may well respond in a way that would be both effective and be beyond what we have so far seen from him in public. He could really damage the Republicans if they go after him in that fashion. And if they don't go after him in that fashion, what are they going to say? Therein lies the part. Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and again, uh, Mueller seems to me to be a rather unflappable individual. I mean, we don't see a whole lot of him in the public persona, but when, from what we've been told, and, and it just his presence, of course, uh, when he did finally make that public statement, uh, which is not to say he's passive, because the fact that he wrote two letters shortly after uh, Bill right. Barr went out there and said, I, you know, this is what the report has in- included in this. Uh, he, I, I get the sense that if pushed, he will defend this report. Yes, and that's that was the underlying uh assumption of what I was just saying, this may be an origins trap for the Republican side of the, this. If you go ahead and attack this man, I mean, he was a Marine and a, and a prosecutor and cautious, and if they try to divert attention from the substance to say, well, the whole thing was illegitimate and you were part of it, he may well respond in a way that uh, would not look good for the Republicans. I don't, they may not survive that line of attack if that's what they want to do, and if they don't want to do that, for, the, for obvious reasons, he might he might come right back at him. Um, then, because as you point out, he's not passive. He's but he's strict and by the book. One of the other implications of this uh, report now, and the press is talking about this a lot, is it's coming at a time when there's been building pressure on the Democrats to go say yes, we want to go for an impeachment, and once he even repeats publicly what's in the report but people haven't been paying attention to. And that's another thing that is being said over and over again. Well, yeah, a lot of people didn't know what was in that report because they don't read it. Mm-hmm. And this is a chance. So this is a, a, an educational moment by the Democrats to educate the country what was actually in that report. They don't put it that way, but that's, that's what it is. But that in turn may then build pressure for more Democrats to flip over and saying, well, in the House, we we agree with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, we're, we're not going to call for impeachment, but there, this could flip enough of those to really build more pressure for impeachment, just as the 2020 campaign seriously gets underway. Because there is a, a middle step, as we found out in this yes. process, isn't there, Elliot, where they the can, inquiry. an impeachment, what is it, an inquiry or something? Right. Yeah. Which is not actually going towards, you know, whether an up and down vote about impeachment, but just we want to find out more. And it's possible that's what this uh, testimony on the 17th of July will lead to. I, before, we, before we finish the interview, I think that we should emphasize what I believe he's going to emphasize. Yeah. And that is, the Russians attacked America, and what are you doing about it? 
I think that he's probably going to try to draw attention away from what everybody else wants to ask him about and to say, hey, remember why this was set up in the first place? We couldn't really prove at a high level that there was an intent by the president's side of things, by the Trump campaign side, to collude with the Russians. Uh, but they were actively intervening in our, and I, you know, I think that will probably be one of his main goals in going public uh, against his will, is to say, let's pay attention to what the Russians were trying to do to us, and that's the big story here. Well, if go again, we'll go back to a statement that he made a couple of weeks ago, uh, and, and the thrust of the report. If in fact the message he does want to get across, and the narrative he wants to, to underscore here is about Russian involvement in this, he's got to be awfully frustrated, I think, Elliot, because nobody's talking about that. Yes, and that's why that's why I suspect he's going to try to use this public appearance, which he didn't want to do, to say, let's remember what this is really all about. America was attacked, and uh, I've laid lots and lots of uh, grounds for other things for the Congress to take take note of, uh, if they so choose, you know, <laughs> obstruction of justice. But uh, let's get back to the to the main story here. Also, another thing that I don't think has been um, emphasized sufficiently is what I've been calling Volume Three, Bill. As you know, there were two volumes. Yeah, but there were a lot of other things that might relate to fiscal impropriety or other kinds of impropriety, which he uh, hived off to the courts. There's at least 14 cases going on now uh, outside of the Mueller report, but which emanated from within it. And I'll give you a quote here. Uh, In his report, he said, periodically they identified evidence of potential criminal activity outside the scope of the special counsel's jurisdiction established by the attorney general. Those were hived off to a variety of courts, and also independently some, of, some courts are, are taking action uh, beyond or separate from whatever the Mueller team sent to them. So this is by no means a story that's closed. It's going to go on, uh, and again, I think you and I have discussed this. Donald Trump has really, really extra good reasons for wanting to be get reelected and will take the steps to make it happen, because otherwise he's it's still in very grave legal peril. Uh, which, uh, as you say, could uh, blow up in his face if he if he loses this election, becomes citizen Trump once again. He's uh, he's liable for prosecution, isn't he? He is indeed, and uh, more than that, there's a statute of limitations on some of these, so that if he stays as president, he can outrun some of those. Now, I want to emphasize again: I don't, I'm not assuming he's guilty. I'm suggesting that the Mueller report, which is what we're talking about, has raised a lot of issues. And the, some of those are going to be explored in more depth and in front of the public in a different way as of uh, these hearings. But beyond that, these court cases continue. He is making a very successful appeal to his, to his supporters that all of this is a witch hunt. There was no collusion, uh, no obstruction of justice, and they're out to get me, and the deep state is after me, and you have to rally around your president who's there for you. And this is, and he can use this Mueller... Uh, this appearance in the middle of July uh, to just reinforce that message. Exactly. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, you're very welcome. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, from uh, Carleton University. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.